Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, September 9th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and on today's financial show, we're going to take a look at DocuSign's most recent quarter. Uh, we've got a look at a new launch here that Matt's going to dig into for us. We've got a new segment we're going to try out this week called What's the Last Stock You Bought and Why? As always, we'll have a couple of stocks for you to watch, but we begin this week with another installment of Between Two Fools. Phil Waldeck is president of Prudential Retirement, a leading provider of defined contribution, defined benefit, non-qualified deferred compensation plan administration, and institutional investment and risk management services. Recently, Robert Brokamp and I spoke with Phil about the state of retirement in the U.S., potential implications of the SECURE Act, and the role employers like Prudential and The Motley Fool play in strengthening retirement security for generations to come. Okay, so Phil, first things first. Why why do you think so many Americans have such a difficult time saving for retirement? I mean, it, it the concept is great. Most people it feels like are thinking about retirement from the first day they get into the workforce. Yet, you know, as a whole, we have a really difficult time pulling it off. Why do you think that's the case? Well, it's uh, the system works really well for part of America. So. Generally, it works pretty well for large and medium-sized employers, for people who work for large and medium-sized firms. Uh, But we know that Americans broadly are financially stressed. And part of the challenge is the system is voluntary. So it requires that people make lots of individual choices and that they make the right choices to be on track. Uh, And it starts with, does your employer have a plan? Uh, if you work for a smaller employer, that is less likely, and that means more is on your back to figure it out, uh, make savings via IRAs, et cetera, as opposed to having an employer uh, that can give you access to a plan, ideally auto-enroll you into that plan, so you have to make a conscious choice not to save, uh, as opposed to taking lots of active steps uh, to do it and to do it right. Having things like payroll deduction helps you stay on course. Otherwise, it's much harder to do uh, ongoing savings if you have to do it all yourself when the real world happens in terms of surprises. You know, people have uh, uh, emergencies, whether it be cars, whether it be hurricanes, as we're seeing in the news now, that could put people off uh, course. And then the complexities of people's lives uh, make it easy to procrastinate, uh, and we often have an uh, optimism bias uh, where we'll get to it later, and it gets harder if you wait. I feel like the, I'm glad you mentioned the auto enrollment thing because I, generally speaking, I'm for you know people having the choice. You know they can do one thing or the other. Uh, sometimes and a lot of times, you know what we do here at the Fool in many cases, we're trying to help people make those good decisions, uh, even if they don't know that they're really good decisions at the time. I feel like that auto enrollment is something that should be standard for every employer. I mean, I guess you can't force that on them, but I would I would love to see more employers. Adopt that auto enrollment and force the individual to opt out of it because I think a lot of times it just boils down to people being kind of lazy, right? They don't want to go through the work of enrolling themselves. You got to kind of do some work to auto unenroll yourself too, I guess. So I, I, I just I'd love to see more of that auto enroll. Uh, absolutely, I think auto enrollment is really a wonderful tool because the individual still has the control; they can opt out, but they're being put on the right path that they'd have to step off of. Uh, and it takes an active step not to do the right thing, and it makes it a lot easier for people that are busy, and makes it a lot easier for people that may be um, 
uh, torn in terms of all the complexity that they're dealing with with retirement. Help them get on the right path. That's what the autos do with auto enrollment. Yeah, adding on to that, this is Robert. Um, the studies indicate that if you have auto enrollment at your employer, at your job, the participation rate in the 401k is significantly higher. It's something like 80, 85 percent compared to plans where there is no auto enrollment in the participant. Participation rate is like 50, 55, 60%, something like that. And I think part of that is that sometimes the plans can be complicated or at least intimidating. Uh, someone, you know, you join your new job, you're starting your new job, and you're asked then to sign up for the 401k, uh, as well as all the other benefits that you have. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how to simplify and streamline. Retirement plans, but maybe all employee benefits for someone who's starting a job. Well, I think it starts with having an employer that has a plan and has auto enrollment as an example. So just to uh, uh, reinforce what you were saying, uh, Rob, is the um, if you look at employees that are making between thirty and fifty thousand a year, they are sixteen times more likely to be saving for retirement if they have access to a workplace plan. Now, that is a huge tailwind that can be working for them. So how do we make it simpler? How do we uh, take advantage of the benefits of uh, the workplace structure? Uh, So specifically, uh, it is helpful if uh, you've got an employer that's got um, a plan, that they have auto enrollment, if uh, that workplace plan has a match, uh, if uh, employees are nudged to higher contribution levels, so auto enroll at a um, higher uh, level to get you closer to 10% or so of contributions, and then to move you up the ladder of contributions uh, with an auto increase every year. Uh, so if you start out at 4 or 5% every year, have it go 6, 7, 8, 9 until you get to at least 10%. Additionally, make it easy on the investments. Uh, have tools like target date funds or other asset allocation engines to take the complexity out of it. So wherever possible, um, have a set of defaults that are the right path, uh, where people still have control, uh, but help them get on the right path. I, I like how that s- streamlines the process for people. I mean, it, you take a lot of the thinking out of it, kind of just do the heavy lifting for them. Um, what you know, for someone who's going to be a little bit more active in their retirement plan, someone who maybe keeps up with a little bit more or wants to know more about the limits and what they can contribute. What are some of the tips that you suggest to individuals who want to save more in in their retirement plan? Uh, well, I think there's some basic fundamentals, and you know, every person should take their full circumstances into account. So these are broad comments, but you know, start early. Don't wait. Uh, let time be on your hand, on your side, so that employees in their 20s, if they can get started early and not delay, they'll have that compounding investment return advantage on their uh, side. Uh, second basic is contribute at least enough to get to the employer match. Um, have a plan to ultimately get to 10% or more uh, of your wages going into the plan. Don't get off track, meaning don't take withdrawals or loans have uh, an emergency savings fund that you would build uh, over time so that when real-life surprises happen, cars break down, hurricanes happen, etc., you don't have, uh, you've got the resilience so that you can weather that uh, and keep your retirement plan on track. And, um, you know, then there's other steps uh, associated with uh, being prudent 
with Social Security, uh, resist the urge, take it early. Um, there's a whole series of steps that people can uh, take. Uh, but I think it begins with getting in the game early uh, and making sure that you are contributing enough and able to stay the course. How often do you see, and you're absolutely right, time is your buddy and you got to get in early. And I think in a lot of cases, people don't because they either didn't really have uh, that financial education early on enough to understand the power of it there but when how often do you see people who feel like you know they're they've gotten into it late and they need to figure out a way to play catch up that can be a very dangerous path to wander down because you start making some decisions that maybe uh, aren't necessarily the wisest but uh, how often do you see people who are getting into it late and really trying to figure out what they can do to catch up well it is much easier to take the right steps than it is to recover from the wrong steps uh, so starting early way better than trying to catch up later. Uh, If you are trying to catch up later, then how can you uh, contribute as much as possible and how can you take advantage of catch-up contributions, quote-unquote, that uh, older employees are able to contribute a larger amount than they would otherwise in terms of the maxes that they're exposed to. Um, But it also means uh, uh, avoiding some of the other mistakes that could happen outside of the plan. So, you know, having a budget, uh, a spending plan, having a buffer for emergency savings, uh, having a game plan on debt. So the best approach is to not get into debt in the first place, uh, but to the extent that people have student loans, have a game plan on student loans, and be really cautious when it comes to things like credit card debt. Earlier in the year, the House of Representatives passed something called the SECURE Act, SECURE standing for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement. Just rolls right off the tongue. (laughs) It does. Um, So, it very solidly passed the House. The Senate is still kind of sitting on it. Apparently, uh, there are a few senators that have some qualms about a few things. But it it generally looks promising. I know it's something that you've been paying attention to. So, tell us a little bit about your take on the SECURE Act and how it could help people save more for retirement. Well, I think maybe I'll pose some questions. When was the last time you uh, had legislation that Democrats and Republicans widely uh, agree on? So just super strong support from both parties. It passed the House, as you mentioned, 417 to 3. A similar bill uh, came out of the Senate Finance Committee, 28 to 0. You've got all sorts of constituents from U.S. Chamber of Commerce to AARP behind it. Uh, So there's a real opportunity to have uh, the best step forward in terms of retirement legislation in over a decade. Um, And what it does is it has three basic components. It uh, helps more employers cover more workers to give them access to plans. It helps increase retirement savings, and it helps make the drawdown the ability to take an account balance and turn it into income uh, that you can use throughout your retirement years easier. So what do I mean by all that? Uh, Often, small employers don't offer plans. And they don't offer plans uh, because of costs, uh, because of complexity of administering a plan, or because of concerns about liability, potentially getting sued. Um, What this legislation does is creates a pooling effect that enables small employers to come together and have larger employer buying power in terms of efficiency. It takes administrative complexity out of the picture and provides uh, tax credits so that small employers set up plans and uh, take the step of auto-enrollment that we talked about earlier. Um, And it also uh, uh, minimizes the fiduciary liability for small employers. 
So there's a whole series of wins there. That's good for the worker, and that's good for the smaller employer as well. The second area uh, that I think has a potential impact that will be helpful is this auto-enrollment currently has a ceiling above which you cannot uh, increase each year, auto-escalation. Uh, that ceiling would be moved to a, a higher threshold, which means people could contribute more on an automatic basis. Um, it also has some other minor adjustments uh, for IRA contributions and required uh, distributions out of plans. Uh, but all of that helps uh, get more people in the game. Uh, it provides more coverage for long-time part-time employees. People who have been part-time workers uh, for several years can be included in workplace plans. And then finally, if you build a successful retirement nest egg and then you're at the cusp of retirement, that too can be complicated. What do you do next? How do you draw the income out of your retirement nest egg, uh, this legislation helps employers and employees by having illustrations that explain what an account balance can turn into and to make it easier for employers to offer uh, guarantees for income, annuities, to help those employees draw down their uh, retirement assets but not outlive them, which is a, a complicated balancing act for an individual to navigate. Yeah, I'm on the 401k committee here at The Motley Fool, and I, there are a couple of things I think people need to understand about 401ks. First of all, they do cost your employers money, um, so it is a great benefit, and, and people should be very grateful that they have it. But when we at The Motley Fool started looking at our 401k, and this is many, many years ago, we were a much smaller company, and there were some of the bigger providers that wouldn't even look at us because we were such a small company. So the ability to band with other small companies and be basically a bigger buyer in the marketplace is a huge advantage. Well, that's absolutely right on. And um, the, that pooling effect is uh, helpful, uh, both in terms of cost, but also in terms of complexity for the employer. Because uh, you get to smaller and smaller employers, uh, benefits in general are a complicated landscape that generally those employers would like to spend less time on. <laughs> yeah. One aspect of it that I think uh, is, is drawing a little bit of, uh, if not controversy, just people want to make sure things are going to be okay, and that is the Act will allow more annuities to be in 401ks. Um, and annuities have a mixed reputation. Um, I personally think the plain vanilla annuity where you, you, know, you buy a lifetime income, I think it makes a lot of sense. But there are obviously a lot of more complicated annuities, higher cost annuities, and there's some concern that a lot of those will end up in 401ks. Um, so what could you say to sort of allay the concerns that some people have that 401ks will be filled with a lot of basically products that are inappropriate for a lot of people? Well, I think there's uh, several dynamics here. First, what problem are we trying to solve? Uh, we're trying to help people um, by pooling longevity. So I have the risk of living longer. Half the people will live uh, more than the average expectation. Uh, so I have the risk if my longevity expectation is 85, half of us will live more than 85 as an example. So how do you make sure that people don't run out of money at the end, uh, but also not get exposed to inappropriate uh, or improperly priced products? Um, so I think we do have a need to understand how to draw account balances down and how to protect against longevity risk. Uh, what I think will happen with this legislation is we'll have appropriate uh, regulation. We will have uh, institutional uh, buyers who will um, expect the market to provide them appropriate products. 
And over time, this isn't a market that's going to transform overnight. Um, over time, a market will um, emerge in which there are institutionally priced um, uh, for plan sponsors that are bringing thousands of participants together as opposed to individual relationships. Uh, and I think you will see uh, a competitive market emerge just like it has for target date funds, just like it has for other aspects of the retirement system. But it'll be a combination of providers um, that are expert at this, um, institutionally uh, priced, meaning cheaper than retail pricing uh, that will emerge and uh, with regulatory oversight. I'm going to piggyback on this uh, innovation topic for a moment because I, I think I mean the pooling effect I think is great. I think we see more and more small businesses coming into play. We're going to see more innovative approaches, new ideas, things that will make uh, our, our retirement uh, security landscape here in, in, in the United States even better. But what role do you see like today? I mean, the role that employers play today in strengthening our, our retirement security landscape, and more more so, what are some of the innovative approaches that you've seen from uh, these employers in the marketplace today? Well, maybe I'll start um, with your original question and then go to the innovation that we started the discussion, which is about how hard it is uh, for individuals. You know, if you just use the analogy back to getting all these steps right to be on track for retirement. It would be really complicated for me to fly from New York to Los Angeles, but that system works pretty well, despite you know complaints we might have about airline travel. I don't have to figure out how to get a plane and navigate from here to L.A., um, but the retirement system requires that you take lots of individual steps to get it right, and if you know aircraft travel can happen with such safety and such predictability, we should be able to get our retirement system to function way better, and way better means uh, having it happen at the workplace because employees trust their employers. Uh, the, there's a recent survey out there, the Edelman Trust Barometer, that identifies one's own employer as the most trusted institution in the country. More than the media, more than government, uh, you pick an institution, business in general, people trust their employers. So um, we know that the Social Security system is essential, but it's not enough. So you need to have, as we talked about earlier, Plans that have auto-enrollment, uh, employers that have plans in the first place, plans that have uh, simplicity built into their design, including auto-escalation, um, that employers address the broader uh, financial preparedness needs, the broader financial wellness uh, that employees need to navigate. So they're going to need short-term strategies like emergency savings, uh, budgeting, uh, debt management like uh, student loan. They're going to need protection, uh, you know, disability uh, insurance as an example, and then they'll need to figure out how to draw down their savings uh, income protection. Um, if employers can uh, make it simpler and providers can help those employers do so, uh, you'll see more and more employers, and we're really uh, energized by those that are on the front edge of this, providing broader financial uh, education and broader um, financial support in terms of navigating these issues, especially things like budgeting, how to use your employee benefits better, how to build emergency savings, uh, student loan assistance, uh, and all sorts of planning uh, tools and access uh, to protection capability. But why don't I pause? Uh, because I think there are great examples where employers are embracing this financial wellness opportunity, both because 
it's valuable to their employees, but also because it's good for their business. Uh, it creates more engaged, more productive employees. They're not distracted by the stresses that we know people have. It would certainly makes sense that your employer would be sort of the nexus of your financial life. When you look back like 70, 80 years ago, uh, most people didn't have health plans through their employer. They paid for it themselves. There really was no such thing as a 401k. At that, you Basically, you, you went to work, you got your paycheck, and then everything else was up to you. But these days, it's very different. You rely on your employer for your health plan, for your retirement plan. If you're a flex spending plan, you probably get some sort of disability insurance. You might get life insurance. So it makes sense to have these things sort of centered around your employer, especially if they embrace that responsibility. Here at The Motley Fool, we have something every year called Financial Health Day, where we have classes, we have experts come in, and basically everyone in the entire company is encouraged to take time off from work and, and take care of some important financial tasks. Um, so I think the whole movement towards financial wellness within the workplace makes a lot of sense. Is there anything particular that happens at Prudential that you'd like to highlight? Well, uh, the sorts of things I'll describe for Pru, we um, are making available uh, for our clients, but I, I really am proud of the case study we have with our own employees. So we started on this early. Uh, over 10 years ago, we started tracking um, wellness in general, sort of the wellness of our employees and their financial wellness in particular, and linking the correlation between financial stress and other wellness outcomes. So, you know, examples, uh, those that are financially stressed versus those that were not financially stressed, how does that correlate with their satisfaction with their supervisor? How does that correlate with their satisfaction with life in general? Uh, what's the correlation with short-term disability claims or the duration, uh, how long they're out on short-term disability? And what we found was those that were financially stressed were two times or more than two times likely to have those bad outcomes that I described. And so for a decade, we focused on the same sorts of things that the Motley Fool uh, employment uh, environment has that you just described. So uh, personal finance education seminars in person and online, uh, including budgeting, uh, elder and dependent care counseling, student loan assistance, emergency savings, could go on and on. But the punchline is uh, this has been a focused effort for more than a decade. And admittedly, we're a really large employer. So we have uh, resources to focus on this, and we're in this industry. So, example, we used IBM Watson uh, to uh, analyze this data over the last decade, and we cut the financial stress of our employees by over 50% over that time period. And that's not only a great outcome in terms of all those people's lives, but relative to other employers that we measure ourselves against in terms of peers, we went from being having a more stressed workforce to having a less stressed workforce. And you know that's impacting thousands of potential employees, but it also makes us a more effective business in terms of our impact uh, to our clients and customers. Well, less stress is a good thing. I'm sure we can all agree. He's the president of Prudential Retirement, Mr. Phil Waldeck. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Pleasure. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Rob. And now joining me in the studio, as always, certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. It's hot down here. Is it still still hot up there? Where you, you know, are? it cooled off a little bit here over the weekend and and into this new week. The mornings are cooling off a little bit. It's warming up though, and I tell you, I think they're talking about like these 
90 degree days hitting us towards the middle of the week. So maybe this is the last of the last of the summer kind of getting it's 95 and sunny in South Carolina yeah, right now. So. A little bit warmer than I wanted, but uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy I like the change in seasons, man. I mean, football's here now. I, I appreciate the cooler mornings and the cooler evenings, so I'm kind of looking forward to fall, to be honest with you. Yeah, my my wife tells me don't even don't even ask to go to any football games till like October when it cools down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> uh, so first thing we wanted to jump into this week, last week, uh, a company we cover here on the show, uh, DocuSign. Uh, earnings came out for DocuSign last year or last week. I'm sorry, and um, you know this this was a, a bit of a different uh, reception this quarter as opposed to last. And if we just look at the numbers, uh, certainly it was it was a good quarter. Total revenue of uh, 235.6 million dollars was up 41 percent uh, from a quarter from the same quarter a year ago. Uh, subscription revenue was up 39 percent. Um, and if we look at billings, and I think billings was really a source of, of concern last quarter, billings uh, were up 47% uh, year over year. So, really, what was a concern last quarter in the billings number seems like it was less of a concern uh, this quarter. And consequently, the stock had a really uh, good day on the release. And it seems like that momentum has continued uh, on into today. Uh, the stock was up. What somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 percent or so there following the earnings release. But Matt, this is a company that you you follow too. What was what what were some of the things that stood out to you in the in the releases quarter? Well, the main thing that stood out to me is I'm kind of sad I didn't buy it a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Um, but beyond that, um, I just just kind of I wanted to point out that. Yeah, they're growing like a weed right now, but that doesn't mean that they're going to slow down anytime soon. Um, just a, two two main things to point out is first that they're still mostly domestic in terms of revenue. Um, I think about eighty percent of DocuSign's revenue came from the U.S. during the quarter, and that means there's still a ton of opportunity to expand its solutions going forward. And DocuSign's just a huge value proposition for its customers. Um, I was reading through the, one of their presentations, and they say they they save their average customer thirty six dollars in business expenses every time. That a document is signed electronically on their platform versus manually. Wow. So yeah, right. So I mean, when I just think like you know my my realtor bringing me a contact a contract to sign versus just sending me one over the internet. I mean, he's that's an hour he's spending to you know physically get me a document that he could be focusing on other areas of his business. So it's a big value proposition to customers. So it's like a it's almost turning into a must have if you have a lot of signed contracts. Um, and then they're kind of trying to expand beyond just the signatures. They're, they are starting to roll out what they call their DocuSign Agreement Cloud, which yeah. is supposed to be kind of an all-in-one, um, not only signing documents, but preparing them, managing them afterwards, things like that. So there's a lot of you know value they could still create for people. It's just because they're growing at a tremendous rate now doesn't mean that's going to slow down. Yeah, I, I mean I agree with you on on virtually all points there. I mean part of it, you know, just from a, a user. I mean it seems like anytime I need to sign something, DocuSign is the preferred provider. My wife and I just signed a home equity line of credit document. We're going to do a home renovation here later, and and so the lender sent us uh, documents via DocuSign. Um, and you know it was interesting. I was happy 
having a conversation with Emily Flippin last week. She was talking to me about uh, recently she had moved and was going to the DMV to get all of her stuff squared away from the move. And you know, typically when you go to a DMV, they're they're asking for physical. Uh, paperwork, physical signatures, proof of all of this stuff that you're doing, your residence and whatnot. Um, and, and it turned out that, of course, they were asking for that. But they said that the other one uh, acceptable form of documentation was was DocuSign uh, executed agreements. And that was uh, really fascinating for me to hear. I mean, that is becoming sort of the accepted standard when it comes to e-signatures. And, you know, there's always this conversation of, well, what is DocuSign's moat? And, I mean, I don't know that there is necessarily a moat today. Uh, perhaps they grow that network out in the product offering in such a way that they, they do develop a moat down the road. But uh, you have a lot of competition in the space. And, and one of the names that always comes up is Adobe. Um, and then it started, it struck me, you know, if you ask someone what Adobe does, it, it's not entirely easy to answer that question, at least succinctly, right? I mean, Adobe does a lot of things. And I don't think that e-signatures really are the crux of the business. That's not what that business was founded on and what they're really working on uh, you know, as far as innovation goes. Whereas we talk about DocuSign, this is what they do, right? It's, it's contract e-signature uh, management. I mean, this this is the market that they are focused on, and and it's it's uh, interesting to see how they're developing. Like you said, that end to end solution with the agreement cloud. I think it's it's something that's obviously gaining some traction. They added 29,000 new customers for the quarter. They now stand at five hundred thirty seven thousand paying customers, and. To top it all off, they've introduced this Rooms for Mortgage product, which is essentially their effort to take their e-signature business into one of the biggest market opportunities out there in in mortgage uh, agreements. And so, like you, I feel like there are just so many different ways they can go with this business, just focusing on that core competency. Um, I, I, you know, listen, I'm I'm a happy shareholder. I know they're not profitable yet, but that's that's inevitable uh, when you're growing the top line like they are. And, and um, it seems like the market's starting to come around to it as well. Maybe last quarter was just a hiccup. Yeah, maybe, maybe this quarter I'll fi- finally pull the trigger on it and, <laughs> and add it to mine. I've been I've been watching them forever, and it just seems like every time I want to add to it, I've I can't because I've talked about them recently. Well, we'll shut up for uh, shut up about it for now, and and then you know next opportunity I'll give you a little nudge, Matt. How about that? All right. So no, no talking about DocuSign for the. <laughs> Next few weeks, at least. It's off the agenda. Let's go to the next <laughs> item on the agenda. This is something that's really cool, I think, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say. We've got a new launch here, really, uh, that you are very closely tied to, and we talked a little bit about this before, but um, I want you to really get into the nuts and bolts of this. And all I'll say, it's real estate-related, which is right up your alley. Uh, Matt, how about you tell our listeners uh, what to be on the lookout for? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> pretty much everybody who's listening right now knows that the Motley Fool has been, you know, a stock investment site. Um, well, we're we're branching out to another really exciting area of investing that is, you know, one of my personal favorites, which is real estate. And I'm not just talking about REITs, although that's part of it, but things like um, the crowdfunded real estate that's becoming so popular, uh, buying properties, um, you know, how to finance your investment property, things like that. And so we're launching a new real estate site known as Million Acres. Uh, the word million, like million dollars, and acres is in like an acre of land. Um, so you can actually see a preview of it right now. We're launching it later this week, but you can see a preview at www.millionacres.com. 
And there is a lot more content coming soon, but you can see a whole lot of what we've been working on so far. Um, I've been, you know, I've been writing for the past few weeks almost exclusively on Million Acres content. So you can see a lot of what I've been working on on there. And we're just really excited to get it out there because real estate, in my opinion, is one of the the best ways to create long-term wealth. And that's what we're all about here. So I am really excited to show what we've been working on to everybody. Yeah. And I can say that, you know, we got an update on Million Acres from the team last week here at HQ. And, uh, you know, listeners, I cannot encourage you enough to go check check that site out because, yeah, like you said, Matt, I mean, what you guys are doing is, is really neat. It's a new direction for this business and it's focusing on, um, I mean, just a, a tremendous long term wealth driver in real estate. So excited to see how you guys grow that service out. We'll talk certainly more about it here in the weeks to come. Uh, let's jump over to a, a new segment we're going to try out here. And this is not something we can do every week because, honestly, Matt, we're not buying stocks every week. At least, you know, personally. But we thought it would be fun to introduce something we might be able to try out every once in a while called What Was the Last Stock You Bought and Why? And so, Matt, I'm going to go ahead and kick it off to you first. What was the last stock you bought and why? The last stock I bought was FedEx. I already owned it. I bought more shares about three weeks ago um, and for a few reasons. So, for one, it's just gotten absolutely hammered recently. <clears throat> Um, obviously, shipping's a very cyclical business, um, especially when it comes to e-commerce. People buy less, there's less need to ship. And economy's strong, people are buying more, there's more need to ship. So on recession fears, uh, fears about the trade war, they've just kind of been hammered lately. They recently announced they're going to non-renew their Amazon contract, which is going to be a long-term positive for the business, but is likely to result in some short-term pain. It's a very low low margin part of the business for them. But, I mean, it's Amazon, so <laughs> you're going to have some short-term pain when you sever ties with Amazon. Of course. Uh, but there's a lot to like about them. They're expecting record holiday shipping volume this year, um, even you know, even when the Amazon contracts lapse. Um, they're adding some a lot of on-site locations um, in Walmarts and Walgreens and places like that. Um, their ground shipping is probably their biggest opportunity going forward, and they're really trying. That's been the highest area of growth, and they're trying to keep that momentum alive. So I th- and right now they're trading at just eleven times earnings. Wow. Um, so right. So and I mean, when you think shipping, there's FedEx and UPS and, and a bunch of smaller ones. So it's a really fragmented market, other than the top players. And I think FedEx is doing the right thing, getting rid of Amazon. Um, to focus on their higher margin business. There's a lot of e-commerce to go around, not just Amazon. Um, and a lot of other e-commerce players are st- are growing at rapid paces. And I think FedEx will be able to take full advantage of that in the years to come. Most likely. Yeah, that's a big shipping network there. And, and as we both know, I mean, the, the costs to, to building out that size of a business, that infrastructure, I mean, they are really prohibitive. Um, and so, they've, they've done a lot of the heavy lifting um, already. So, uh, yeah, interesting buy there. Well, mine is a little bit different, but you probably are getting some of this stuff uh, that this company is sending to you via FedEx, and that's Etsy. Uh, Etsy is actually the most recent stock that I bought. 
Uh, and you know, it's a stock that I already own, so I added to my position. Now it doesn't have that same attractive eleven times earnings valuation, Matt. I must not, uh, I must, I must, must not lie. This thing was a little bit more expensive looking, I guess, around fifty, fifty-five times earnings or so. But I mean, it, hey, it's profitable and it's cash flow positive, and I've, I've extolled the merits of of the business model for a while now. But it really was just adding to a company that I think is. Really continuing to succeed. I mean, if we look over the most recent quarter, uh, active sellers grew to over 2.3 million, um, and active buyers clocked in at better than 42.7 million. Their net worth uh, pushed through almost 1.1 billion dollars in gross merchandise sales, and it's neat that they have some catalysts here going forward as well. Uh, they've, they've announced a new free shipping program, and we know how free shipping uh, plays out with with consumers. And they have a new unified ad platform called Etsy Ads. Um, and then they've also made uh, an acquisition of a company called Reverb, which is basically it's like Etsy for musical instruments. And as someone with musical instruments all over my house, I certainly understand the value in that. And I think that's another nice little niche network that will you know mix in nicely with the rest of Etsy's business, and it gives them a capability that they didn't have before. So I, I do really like this business for the long haul. Um, and, and like I said, you know you're probably getting some stuff from Etsy. Courtesy of FedEx, so I mean that worked out pretty nicely for us. Matt, a little one-two punch there. Uh, that's a nice little, uh, nice little combo for for uh, folks that are looking for some stock ideas. Um, and hey, what was the last stock you bought? I mean, go ahead, hit us up on Twitter at MF Industry Focus or email us at industryfocus at fool Let us know what the last stock you bought was and why. Okay, Matt, let's wrap things up. We have a couple of more stock ideas. As always, we go with one to watch. What is the stock our listeners need to be watching this week? Well, in the spirit of the Million Acres launch, I want to give you one of the REITs that's on the top of my list, uh, Simon Property Group. Um, kind of another play on the, the idea that recession and trade war fears have been a little bit overdone. Um, retail REITs have just been crushed. Um it's no secret that there have been a giant wave of retail bankruptcies, store closures, things like that. Um, look at Sears, J.C. Penney's about to is not looking great. Yeah. Um, so that's hurt a lot of retail companies, especially malls. Um, but Simon is Simon Property Group ticker symbol SPG is in kind of a league by itself. They own some of the most valuable mall properties in the world. Um, if you've been to say the, uh, what's, uh, there's forum shops in Las Vegas is a big one that I've been to. There's uh, the Arundel Mills mall, right? Kind of close to where, where Jason is right now. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, and it's huge. It and is. the reason that they're doing so well is they're in- incorporating a whole lot of non-retail elements into their properties. Um, Arundel Mills has a casino. Um, a lot of them have hotels built in. There's a uh, office space. They're starting to put in a lot of entertainment venues, so they're really trying to, you know, create a built-in source of foot traffic. Sales are actually up in their tenant stores year over year, um, which is a, a fantastic sign in this retail environment. Yeah, and they're they're trading at you know a rock bottom valuation, paying a dividend over five percent. So. I think they're worth a look right now. Very cool. Very cool. All right, Simon. Well, I'm going to go with um, a company. I don't know that we've ever actually talked about Zoom Video Communications here before, but uh, recently going through their quarter uh, quarterly results, another very good quarter. Revenue up almost 100% uh, to $145.8 million. Uh, customers contributing more than $100,000 in trailing 12-month revenue was up 
over 100%. They now have 466 of those customers. And to put that into context, uh, Slack, which just reported as well, they reported 720 of those customers. So, similar businesses and what they're doing. And I think that just shows there's perhaps some opportunity there for Zoom uh, to pick up some some big spending customers in the coming quarters. Uh, But I thought there was an interesting snippet in the call here. They landed uh, recently a little-known bank. Matt, you'll, you'll recognize the same HSBC. Uh, and I say little known, I'm kidding. Obviously, it's a very big company with 3,900 offices in 67 countries. It's going to give Zoom uh, opening to you know an additional 290,000 hosts uh, there. But they made note on the call that they're really seeing a lot of success in these in the financial services sector. So I just it seems like a business that is uh, very much uh, plugged into. Uh, you know those those global style businesses and in, in facilitating communication, um, and, and certainly HSBC is a good example of that. Um, and then it sounds like they are more and more getting their customers to sign for longer contracts, which shows that those customers are uh, realizing a lot of value there. So, still obviously a very new business, still needs to work into profitability. And the biggest risk in the stock, by far and away, is the risk to the, or the valuation uh, today. But still a good business, one that we like, and, and I think that it has a good future. So, uh, certainly want to keep keep an eye on there. The ticker for Zoom Video Communications, ZM. Okay, Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Appreciate you dropping in and uh, and joining me today. Yeah, always good to see you guys. All right, man. Well, we will save the best, or at least some really good stuff, for next week. So, of course, make sure listeners to tune in. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back.